0: Looking once again at Ephesians, and we are looking at the last of our submission passages. There's three of them in Ephesians, and we've already talked about husbands and wives, and parents and children. And now we are talking about masters and slaves. All right. Now, there's some uh, background in talking about submission as a whole. Uh, we talked about that in the husbands and wives sermon, so if you want to go back, those principles will still apply uh, to this section as well. But uh, we're going to be careful here because uh, slaves and masters, that is a tricky subject, and one that historically in our country has not been handled well and has been uh, misused. And justified and, and uh, mistreated. So our first topic is going to be, okay, why, why is there a passage about slaves and masters in this section of the Bible? Why in, this, in the New Testament does it not condemn slavery more clearly? And how does that shape how we think about the Bible and the Christian life as a whole? Now from there, we're going to secondarily talk about how we can apply this to our lives in a way that makes sense. And so we're going to, because we cannot apply it directly, we have to kind of draw a parallel and say, okay, what truths can we draw out of this relationship and draw to other relationships in our lives? And I think the best way of applying this would be uh, to apply it to the relationship between employer-employee, right? Uh, the, the boss and the worker. And that's going to be what we're going to do uh, this morning. We're going to talk about uh, how the principles of master and slave can be played out in, in our circumstance. Uh, for kids, you're going to want to t- think about teachers teachers and student, that relationship. Fun, fun. Um, I'm sure you're excited about that and what I'll have to say. Uh, so, slavery in the New Testament, we're going to talk about the call to slaves, the call to masters ultimately seeing how we might embody the gospel of Jesus Christ in these unique relationships and uh, use them to the glory of God. So let's read Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart. and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Let's pray. Father, as we approach this passage, we ask that you might help us, you might go with us, you might, uh, by your Spirit, help us to understand these things, and Lord, submit to them. We ultimately long to submit to your word and to Jesus our true ultimate heavenly master. Father, would we actually change the way that we think about work and our uh, responsibilities in it that we may joyfully embody the gospel in all things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So let's start by addressing the subject of slavery and bondservants in the New Testament. Now, There's really only one word that's used here. It's it's slavery throughout. All right. And. All right. Why is it in the New Testament? Why doesn't it say more? What what is going on here? Important. This is an important question. Because most of us, when we interact with non-Christians or with just our own sensibilities, we understand that slavery is wrong. All right. uh, Lincoln has this quote, if slavery is not wrong, then nothing is wrong. Or I think of, I had a friend in college and he was working with uh, non-believers and working to end human trafficking and to to fight it. And he tried to witness to some of these non-believers and what did he get back from them? He got back that the Bible did not condemn slavery. And they were dissatisfied with the Bible's response to slavery, and so they had nothing to do with with Christ and with the Word. People's moral sensibilities have risen up, and we have to think, okay, what does it say about our God and about the the Bible and His Word that this is here? And how does it change the way we think about... uh, the Bible and our callings in the midst of it. Now, I'm only able to talk about this morning the New Testament context of slavery. Now, there is an Old Testament context, uh, which is perhaps more difficult. So, if you want to talk more about that, you can talk to me um, one-on-one. I'd love to talk to you about that. Uh, But for now, we're going to be focusing on the, the context of Ephesians, slavery within the New Testament. All right, so, slavery was a fact of life in the Roman Empire. It was a fact of life. All right, within cities, uh, there were vast populations of slaves. In Rome, uh, it was, there's estimates that it was 90% slaves in Rome. All right, so this is a, a huge portion of the population. And there's this huge gamut of uh, experiences that's covered under this single word, slavery. To be a slave or a bond servant, that could look a bunch of different ways. All right, so first, where did they come from? Now, I'll start with the positive, and we'll we'll move more negative. Now, some people were slaves because they actively chose to be as sort of social climbers. So they saw slavery as a... a means of opportunity and they would put themselves under a tradesman or a wealthy nobleman and they would learn from him and, and grow up and be taught, eventually pay their way out of their slavery and then go on to be free and higher in society as a result. All right, Think of it as your unpaid internship. All right, That's roughly what it is. This is college. Uh, there are others Others who, in their poverty and in their debt, they could not provide for themselves. And so they would go and put themselves under a master who would care for them. In exchange for uh, their work and their service, they would get food and shelter and be cared for. This was a provision for the poor, in a sense. Now, there was also slaves who were the product of military conquests. They didn't have a choice in the matter, and they were made slaves, and they knew exactly where they stood. And that created even a slave caste of people who were born into slavery and would never know life outside of it. All right, so you have this range of of how someone enters into this kind of relationship. And what was their experience? Now, some were brutally and horrifically treated. There are reports of the, the mining slaves. And they were treated horribly, as bad as we can imagine. Now, there are others who were, like we said, tradesmen, scribes, teachers, who lived relatively free. Others were household slaves, and they served under their master. And it really depended upon their master himself, what their experience was. A good master, a good experience. A bad master, a terrible experience. And finally, there are others who were high-ranking, noble officials and they had vast properties. They had slaves of their own. They had relative freedom. But they were technically slaves. Alright, so why do I say this? I say this because we have to have have Good categories in our mind when we think about these things. Now, we can be a little naive and act like, oh, it's just, it was just indentured servitude, and so it wasn't really that bad. No, it could have been really bad. Now, there were some things that it did not include. All right, slavery during this time, it was not racial. There was no racist undertone. It was not certain people groups that alone were slaves. All right. That is very different than the American South. Or another clarification. The New Testament universally, and the Old Testament, universally condemns kidnapping people and making them slaves. The followers of God were not allowed to do that. That was never permitted. First Timothy talks about an enslaver alongside the ungodly, the sinners, the lawless, the disobedient. All right. So it wasn't just this free-for-all and, and God has nothing to say. but we do not see this universal condemnation of slavery. And we have to ask ourselves, okay, why? And why does it seem to even condone slavery in practice? All right, I remind us. The early church was not a political movement. It was not a social reform group. It was not meant to overthrow society. And we have to recognize, what what was this thing? It was this ragtag group of outcasts and misfits who were powerless in a powerful society. And what Paul is trying to do is not to write a manual on how society should be structured. He was writing letters to normal believers who become followers of Christ and then are asking the question, how then do I live? And some of those people were slaves and they were going to be slaves. And he tells them how they might manifest the gospel of Jesus Christ in their that, that situation right then and there. All right. I think there's important implications for that in how we think about the the church and what it's supposed to do, but also how we think about our duties. At no point does social or political or economic injustice get us out from under the call to glorify Christ. There's always a call to glorify Christ and to find out how we might do it in our context. And that takes priority and precedent over the larger social calls of the gospel. That regardless, we are to live our lives in glory of Christ. And to determine how we might do that. Now, as I say that, as I say that, uh, I do not want to imply and, and disparage the efforts of Christians to change and, and right injustices and oppression in society. As Christians gathered power, they were right to do that. They were right to, to see the injustices that were around them and correct them in the name of Christ. And to fight for the truths of the gospel, things like every man made in the image of God Things like the, the universal brotherhood that is found in Christ, the fact that, that slave and free are indistinguishable in Christ, for them to fight for that to be manifested in all of society, that is a good thing. And that is a beautiful thing. That is a building of the kingdom of God. And as a country and our history as believers, we have failed to do that well. Our history is one of, of using this, this very passage and instead of using it to, in the, to shape the context and to, to work it out well, it was used to justify and to say, well, this must be God's will. He allows it. All right. That was a mistreatment and an abuse of the word and something we all have to be on guard to protect ourselves from misapplying and mistreating the word. Right. We're, tw- we're doing an ethics class in our Sunday school and like, it's hard work. It's hard work to take this thing that was written to first century Christians and apply them in a reasonable and responsible way to our lives now. But we work those things out because we long to glorify God and to reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ in all things. All right. So... The word does not, does not openly condemn slavery, but it condemned in it the seeds that overthrew all of it, right? And so we, we look for the seeds, we look for the truths, and we find these beautiful things that really did undermine racism and oppression and all of these things at their core, I, would, I would usually say questions, but I'm not gonna, I can't do that. If you, <laughs> I would love to have question time. Um, if you have questions, talk to me after. Okay. Uh, all right, now, so now it's our time. What are we going to do with this here and now in our own cultural place? There are not, uh, in your daily life, master and slave relationships. So what does this say to us? Is this one of those we get to skip and we get <laughs> to buy? Like, okay, yay. Like, <laughs> no, no, okay. So we're going to see the parallels between slave and master and employee-employer. All right, we see the same power differential. We see the same uh, economic things at play some of these instances of slavery looked very much uh, like a working relationship under another name under another institutional kind of construct but it's the same thing right. so that is the dynamic we're going to be working with how we might apply these things to, to those relationships and so how'd were how were hows the gospel supposed to be played out in the life of a slave In his or her very slavery. Verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord whether he is a bond servant or free. All right, what is he telling the slave here? To obey. To obey and submit to their earthly master. And it, it, with fear and with trembling. That is the very same language that is told of us. That is how we are supposed to submit to God himself. Just like we've talked about in those other relationships, in marriages and in parenting. No, this is full-fledged, true, heartfelt submission. Now, remind us, what does it say? It says, uh, obey your earthly masters. In the Greek, it would say, uh, masters according to the flesh. And so it's not because these masters are any better or any different. It's merely in the flesh that they they are the masters over us. Over the the slave, or the boss is over the employee. And we might then say, okay, if he is merely the the earthly master, then I ought to only give earthly, fleshly obedience, outward obedience. Yeah, I'll clock in and do my time. I'll do what, what it says according to my job description, but I don't have to go any further. He's not my true master. She is not my true master. I don't owe any more than that. All right. What does the Bible call that? That kind of relationship to the boss. He calls it eye service and people pleasing. Mere eye service and people pleasing. He says that is not the way that you are supposed to go about your submission and obedience. No, this may be an earthly master, but you are to give heavenly, spiritual, heartfelt obedience. The exact opposite of what we might think. Now, I like how Colossians says it. It says, uh, there's almost identical passages, and it says, uh, work heartily. Work heartily unto the Lord when you are working from the heart, from the spirit, from the very soul, from the inside of your being. That is how you are to go about your labor. All right. I like that word. Heartily. All right. We're trying to teach uh, our son, like, okay, how do, we, how do we develop his little work ethic? And how do we think about our balance of, like, how do we think about what we're trying to teach him here? All right. Because I... I'm a perfectionist. And so what I would be teaching him is the results. All that matters is the results, and they better be perfect. And so what is my natural inclination? It's just like, okay, I will nitpick everything, and it'll never be good enough, and I'll just like, okay, we'll always make it a little bit better, a little bit better, and he will hate me. All right. Uh, Casey's, Casey's natural inclination, she's just a workhorse, okay? She can work and work and work. And, like, she would do five hours of, of math if she could, and be like, we're just, we're getting this done. All right. He would hate her. All right. <laughs> and, like, and, we're, but the nice thing is, like, we're not left in the dark, but we're left with this, this beautiful word, work heartily. It's like, okay, how do we develop, like, this spiritual desire to serve and to be motivated and to do things from the soul and from the spirit, diligently, but not—not not just running after a goal, not just trying to work our as hard as we possibly can, work ourselves to the bone. No. It's a it's a beautifully vague word, <laughs> and it is called uh, it is our calling. All right, that is how that is how you are to serve. Your earthly masters. Deep, deep down, heartfelt, diligent, soul-dedicated obedience to them. All right, what does this look like? All right, this does not look like when the cat's away, the mouse to play. All right. This does not look like kids... The second the teacher leaves the room and suddenly like there's uproar and disaster and then she comes back and it's like, you know, this is not trying to like squeeze your as much as you can out of your schedule to, to avoid all of the work. This is not lingering over the water cooler. This is not doing the bare minimum, clocking in and clocking out. All right. well, Why? Why does God care? Why does it matter? It matters because you are not working for that earthly master. You are working for your heavenly one. That every time you go about your labors, you are truly working for for Jesus, your master, who has bought you at a price who has loved you and called you to himself, who has given himself for you. And that's where work, work is not a necessary evil. Work is not something that started in the fall because now we can't just eat fruit every day. All right. Work was built into all of creation. It was a means of glorifying God and reflecting our service unto him and our dedication to him. It was a way of loving him. And that is what your labor is. As you labor diligently and heartily unto the Lord, you are working for him. All right. what does your What does your heavenly master deserve? How do you want to work for him? Why do you want to please him? Those are the questions we ask him, not what is my job requirement, what is my boss going to know I do or don't do? And there's a remarkably promise that, that is offered to us. If you work to, for him, you'll be paid by him. All right, look, at, look at verse 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. All right, can you imagine being a slave and hearing this? All right, you are not paid a second for, for a, a minute of your work. And here's God saying, he's saying, you know, I will pay. Because you don't, you don't work for them, you work for me. And if you work for me, I will make sure you are compensated accordingly. All right, that gives, that gives such Dignity. The worker, the slave, even that these mundane tasks or maybe even unjust tasks that you are given—no, they're they're given up to your glorious God, and He will compensate you for them. Now, remind us: we should not think merely of our calling in terms of money. That is not what the job is for. You will be compensated accordingly. We must ask ourselves, okay, is is this a job that I can do heartily unto the Lord, where I understand how it might glorify God, and I I enjoy it and can do it diligently, and in a way that pleases Him, He will take care of your compensation. Do you believe that? Do you believe that that is what your work is? That it is this this beautiful gift to the Lord, a means of serving our master. Now, as you think about this, uh, all right, husbands, you've gotten off scot-free for two weeks, right? All right, you don't have to submit or obey to your children or your wife. All right, then we have this. All right, think, think, think how you wish that your wife and kids submitted to you and then think, okay, how do I interact with my boss? How do I do my work? All right, it should look the same. The thing that you long from them, you should be, all right. All right, we have, we have logs in our eyes and we need to take them out. All right, we should not be picking the specks out of other people, we should be doing these things ourselves. And this is, this is tough. And this is convicting, and this is hard. Kids, with the labor that you do, all right, those things that are silly after-school jobs, all right, this opportunity to serve the Lord. When you go to school and you interact with your teachers, this is an opportunity to heartily obey To the glory of God, as a reflection of how much you love Jesus, you are going to obey your teacher. How do you want to serve and worship Jesus Christ in the way you work? Now, question What if the boss is unjust and evil and mean and sinful? I know you all think your teachers are like that. So, uh, all right. Now, there's one thing we have that is different: we are not slaves. So you can leave. All right. If you don't want to submit and you cannot obey, then leave. All right. That's important. We have that freedom. But and if you stay, you need to be able to submit and obey. But you can always leave. Now, those same rules of submission still apply. We don't do anything illegal. We don't do anything anything sinful. If we need to take these things to higher authorities, we do so. But I say that recognizing all right, listen to 1 Peter 2. Look at what it says Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Right, you deserved it. But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. All right, what is that saying? That's saying that when you give obedience, And submission from the heart to someone who is unjust and evil and cruel, that is an act of grace. That is an act of grace to someone that does not deserve it. They deserve the opposite. But in giving that, you are showing the gospel of Jesus Christ and the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ to this person That's where we tend to think, like, well, no, if I have to escape the injustice, and Paul says, no, use the injustice to show off the gospel of Jesus Christ. Make it, make it a testimony of the gospel, and show that you have a heavenly master that you are obeying in spite of them. And you'll be preaching the gospel with every single step that you take, with every single action. Your heartfelt obedience is a means of sharing the gospel with them and of actually being Jesus Christ and suffering and enduring unjustly just like Christ did on the cross. All right. Do you have that category? Do you have this category like, okay, I, I can represent Jesus by giving grace to people. All right, we live in a society where it's about justice, 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 justice. And we worship a God who has built a kingdom who's based around grace. Are we willing to give grace? Do we believe that might be part of our calling? Peter does. Paul does. Let us manifest the gospel. Amen? All right. All right, now, the call to masters and Owners, employers, verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both your, their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Masters, do the same. Masters, do the same. What is he saying? He's saying, all right. If they are supposed to serve as a reflection of the gospel, then you, masters, you are supposed to lead as a picture of that very same gospel. That you now manifest the role of God, which is the the beautiful and gracious and loving Master, Jesus Christ, who rules over us with justice and with grace. Just like with husbands and wives, both of these callings are are heavy and huge. You are representing so much more than just your, your career. And so you owe them justice. You owe them the compensation that you have promised them. You owe them fair treatment. You owe them impartiality. Because that is how God treats us as master. How Jesus Christ... Comes to us as master. He is just and he is right. He is honest. He is faithful. He is good. Now, why do we do that? We do that because bosses, employers, you have a master and you owe things to this servant, to this employee, to this person as a way of recognizing that you are not their master, they have a master already? And are you honoring the fact that they are under the the ultimate rule of God? They are not your servant, they are not your slave, they are ultimately not your employee, they are God's. And do you treat them like that? Do you call them to, to serve for the, the joy of doing so, for the glory of God, for the love of the work. Stop your threatening. We do not pick up the tools of Satan and shame and guilt and belittle and badger and humiliate. Now those are not the tools that we use. We're compelled by love when we honor Christ. We use those very same tools. When we draw others to obedience. All right. Now, how are we doing? All right, if the answer is not well, then we are honest. All right, it is incredibly difficult to do our labor like this. We just go about our daily routine, we do the things that we do. I don't think we are often engaged with our service to the Lord and our desire to please Him. And what do we do about that? What do we do about that? We go back to our true master. And I remind us what are we? We are terrible servants of the Lord. We were terrible servants. That we were made and we were created to be glorifiers of him and servants of him. And what did we do? We became servants of ourselves and servants of sin and slaves to unrighteousness. And what was our wage? Our, the wages of sin was death. All right, that is the career path that we all chose. And yet, what did our Lord and our master decide to do? All right, undercover boss came... <laughs> And he came and he started working with us and for us and doing the work that we ought to have done. And what did he do? He did it perfectly. And then for all of the punishments that we incurred and all the debt that we accrued and all the death that was our wage to be earned, Jesus Christ took it all for us. That he served us. The Lord of the universe came to serve us unto death. He lived for us. He died for us. He resurrected for us. And then he gives us his eternal life, and he could just treat us as servants from then on out. That's where the parallel of like God and God and uh, God and us, and then master and slave. Like that's a better parallel because it's not optional. We're not employees of the Lord. No, we are. We're fundamentally first slaves to him. We owe all of our lives. We owe everything to him. And yet, what does he call us? He calls us children, sons and daughters, princesses and princes in the kingdom of God. He calls us his beloved, his bride. He calls us to himself not with threatening but messages of love and grace and mercy. He is our true and perfect master who longs to draw us in, that we may serve him for the joy of doing so, that we may be slaves to righteousness so that we might find our our reward, which is eternal life. If you are struggling with this, Do not struggle to work harder or work differently. Look at your true master. Look at your true master and how he has served you, how he has loved you, who he has called you to be, and then serve. Serve this one that we love and who loves us and calls us to manifest this beautiful relationship of mercy and grace. Let us do that work that we may hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Amen? Let's pray. Father, when we... when we see the callings that you give and... The emphasis of Scripture, we are astounded by how central you place the gospel, and Father, how much joy Paul and Peter and the disciples found in showing off the gospel. They did not think first of justice or what they could gain, they thought about how they might glorify Jesus. And Lord, we confess that that is not our first inclination. We think of ourselves, we think of justice. We think of what is right and wrong and. Father, we think of the hardship and the difficulty of truly serving from the heart. Father, we confess that our hearts are not there. We need to see our master correctly and rightly and, and afresh if we're going to serve him in. The everyday work that we do. So, Holy Spirit, would you fill us up? Would you help us? Would you cause us to, to see Christ in all of his glory and the delight that we have such a master? Would you help us to serve, we pray in Christ's name.